Earnings season is heating up, so let's get to it. Motley Fool Money starts now. This is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio, Motley Fool Senior Analysts Jason Moser and Andy Cross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, hey. Hey, Chris. We got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We will talk international investing with Bill Mann. And as always, we got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with earnings season heating up. And first up is Netflix. First quarter results were mixed, with profits a little higher than expected, overall revenue a little lower. The company also announced it is delaying the rollout of its plan to crack down on password sharing. Jason, a lot of focus on Netflix this week, but for the first time in a long time, there wasn't really a lot of talk about something that we typically hear, which is their subscriber number. <laughs> Do you think Netflix is moving into a new phase here? No question about it. I think. Um, I mean, in the past, to your point, there the focus was always subscribers, subscribers, subscribers. Right. Uh, that is absolutely taking a backseat now. And the real story for this quarter uh, revolved around the page sharing and advertising. But but in regard to metrics that matter, I mean, the, the company is now uh, encouraging us to focus on revenue growth and, and operating margin. Right. That's going to be the indicator of success and profitability for the business. And and its subscribers, it's almost like a footnote in the release now. I mean, to that point, uh, they did bring in 1.8 million subscribers, so that's good news. And revenue, when you exclude currency effects, grew 8%, operating margin down a little bit, but they really based that on uh, currency impacts as well. Now, to the page sharing and the advertising, first, page sharing, it is slow going. Uh, this seems to be deliberate on their part. They want to make sure they get it right and maintain a positive member experience. So, what that's going to do, it's going to push growth out a little bit. And, and I think that. That is probably what has investors on edge right now. But they see that accelerating in the back half of the year. And the reason why is because they've already rolled this out in Canada and they're seeing positive signs. But it's kind of like one of those things, it got worse before it got better, but it did start to get better. So I think that gives them reason to believe that domestically here, the paid sharing will pay off. On the advertising front, I was a little bit taken back by by a point they made in in the release there. In the U.S., the ads plan already has a total average revenue per member, which is the subscription plus the ad component there. It's greater than the standard plan that they offer. Now that's fifteen dollars and forty nine cents per month. So I think that goes to show that. While Netflix was a little bit late to the ad game, clearly the consumer is is got some tolerance for for advertising, right? Because I think most other streaming services have that dynamic or at least that offering. So while that initial target of forty million uh, ad clients or ad subscribers might have seemed a little bit glass half full when when they stated that. Now it kind of seems like maybe they could probably get there by the end of the quarter or by the end of quarter three or maybe by the end of the year. Jason, that really caught me well too. And I was very surprised by that and encouraged as a Netflix owner and a follower of the stock. Their target for their free cash flow, this is becoming what Netflix it is becoming a free cash flow growth story. They're being more disciplined on the movie launches and the creation of the content and on the cost structure, I think. So understanding 
that this is a real free cash flow generating business and maybe not like what it was over the past few years. And I think that's what investors are now starting to realize. This is what the power is of Netflix. And that free cash flow, I think, is what's going to drive the stock higher. Yeah, you're right there. And I think something to note there is, too, is that they've, they've pulled back a little bit on content spend this year. Um, and that that impacted the financials positive. Like cash flow was was a little bit uh, better than I think what what we were anticipating. Now the flip side of that is they anticipate getting back to sort of that normalized budget in 2024, mm-hmm. budgeting for around 17 billion dollars in content spend. So that'll probably play out on those cash flow numbers a little bit next year. Uh, but I think that they can counter that with the accelerating uh, performance there in paid sharing as they continue to roll that out. Tesla has been cutting prices on some of its vehicles, and that price cutting showed up in the company's first quarter results. Earnings per share, net income, and lower margins combined to send shares of Tesla down more than 10% this week, Andy. Chris, like any business, it's coming down for Tesla down to pricing and to volumes and making sure that mix is right. And clearly, Tesla this quarter is leading with the volume game. As Elon Musk said, we've taken a view that pushing for higher volumes in a larger fleet is the right choice here versus a lower volume and higher margin. However, we expect our vehicles over time will be able to generate significant profit through the autonomy business. So they delivered 423,000 vehicles this year, up 36%. But the Model 3 and the Model Y drove most of that growth. The higher margin Model S and Model Y made up less than 11,000 of the deliveries, Chris, and that was down 27%. Revenues up 23%. Three of the last four quarters, though, we've seen slowing revenue growth. They've lowered prices several times, somewhere between 15 to 25% or so just this year. Although, just interestingly, they just, I think they just um, increased them right after the earnings call um, to, to, to boost them up back a little bit. Operating margin, which is the really metric that I think so many investors are following, both on the car side and overall. The total company operating margin fell to 11.2% versus 19.2%. And the gross margin, the automotive mode of gross margin, fell to that 20 percentage range. And that's where investors, I think, are getting a little bit nervous, because that's the one they want to see higher. Interesting, though, on that, they still remain on the operating margin well the highest in the industry and more than double the other major car makers. So, they have the profit room in the business model. And this is really now a land grab. They are being very aggressive in the market, very aggressive on pricing to drive the volumes to be able to continue to to drive towards 1.8 million cars delivered this year, which would be up about 37%. Finally, Chris, interesting, the storage and the energy business continues to gain momentum. The the energy storage deployed was up 360% to 3.9 3.9 gigawatt hours now versus less than one gigawatt hours a year ago, and they expect the storage deployment growth to really exceed the volume, the growth in the vehicles over time. So we can't forget about that energy business. It is a growing part of the Tesla story. But overall, I think this is what we kind of started to expect when we saw the aggressiveness that Tesla was being in the market price on their prices of their cars. Shares of Intuitive Surgical up more than 10% this week after first quarter results were highlighted by more procedures. And Jason, Intuitive Surgical Management forecasts that they expect that trend to continue throughout the year. Yeah, good news indeed. It's been a bit of a bumpy ride over the last three years, but Intuitive Surgical is absolutely benefiting from this return to normal. Um, if you look at the numbers, it certainly bears that out. Excluding currency impacts, they saw revenue for the quarter up 17%, modest earnings per share growth as well. Uh, you mentioned procedures, worldwide procedure growth, 26%. That came in well above management's own expectations there. 
Um, and ultimately, when you when you look at a lot of this company's money is made on instruments and accessories because of those procedures. That revenue grew 22%. And so, really, they are seeing more and more being done with their equipment, which is great. Average selling prices remain stable, and that's good. And, you know, Intuitive is really well known for the the DaVinci system, right? Uh, the, the other system they have, the Ion system, which is focused on bronchoscopy, uh, they placed 55 systems for the quarter versus 34 one year ago. And back to the procedures thing with Ion, procedures were up 159%. So, clearly, physicians are finding use in that platform there. Uh, one of the neat things about this company, and one of the reasons why I recommended it in our, in our immersive technology service, uh, is, is the virtual reality angle there. They saw simulation subscriptions grow 36% as the virtual reality training continues to gain traction. I think one thing to keep an eye on with this company, I'm going to ding them a little bit here, AC. You know, we like to see companies buying back their shares because they feel like there's value there. And, and to be clear, I mean, Intuitive Surgicals bought back a lot of shares from the beginning of 2022 to the end of the first quarter of this year. They repurchased 12.6 million shares. The problem is, you go all the way back to 2018, share count's actually up 2%. That's not what you like to see. So it's tough to pull off. Yeah, it, well, it's easy if you if you know how to issue shares. Exactly. Uh, but but you know, I think all in all, I mean that that does not outweigh all of the good that this company is doing. I'd love to see those repurchases ultimately bring that share count down. That'll be one thing I'll pay attention to. The hits keep on coming for Procter and Gamble. Third quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected for the consumer products giant. The company also raised sales guidance for the full fiscal year and. Andy, the pricing power that we've seen from P&G over the last year or so is starting to show up in the form of higher gross margins. Well, gosh, this is kind of the anti-Tesla here. They are all about pricing increases, another boost. They've increased prices 10% this quarter. I think that was on top of a 10% increase last quarter. And like you said, Chris, throughout the year, um, the revenue is up about 3.5%. Earnings up about 3% to $1.37. Operating margins, this continues to be a very profitable company, up uh, uh, at 21.2%. That's about flat from a year ago. The volume are not all that the volume growth not all that impressive really you know when you look across it it's basically in fabric and home care which is like tide and downy and swiffer down five percent but they were up 13 percent in pricing baby and family family care which is like loves and pampers down four percent but up eight percent in pricing that's the story we saw and that increased on that that helped really drive a lot of the gross margin growth of 150 basis points say they are spending more on marketing Chris sales and marketing expenses as a percent of the sales was up 100 basis points. So here you go with Procter and Gamble sales at 25 times earnings, earnings growth of about four percent. You get a little 2.5 percent dividend yield. They generate more than three billion in free cash flow buyback stock, and so you have a very low volatile stock that is probably, I think, going to grow in the mid single digits. And if that's what you're looking for. That's probably going to be fine for the Procter and Gamble story, but don't expect too many fireworks. They got to pay close attention to the pricing, though, right? Because if consumer spending starts to dip, if we fall into a recession, they got to ratchet that back. Don't I think they? so. I think so. But they do have some levers on this side, Chris, and they count on the on whether the expense management or basically, hopefully, drive volumes because the pricing now is not nearly what it was um, when they are increasing pricing. After the break, we've got the latest in healthcare, housing, and the war on cash. Stay right here. This is Motley Full Money. Welcome back to Motley Full Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser and Andy Cross. 
American Express posted record revenue in the first quarter, but higher costs kept the profit line lower than Wall Street was hoping for. Andy, this is yet another quarter where we see the trend of Amex gaining popularity with millennials and Gen Z. Yeah, gosh, Chris, travel and entertainment spending overall up 39%. But what was interesting from the results is millennial and Gen Z makes up 60% of all new consumer growth. And the millennial and Gen Z spending on the platform was up 28%. That was the highest growing group of all the groups, all the cohorts that Amex tra- uh, tracks. Revenues up 32%. The international spending up 29%. Cost up 22%. So that kind of kept a little bit of a, of a lid on the profit margin. They're seeing higher customer engagement and the increase in the usage and travel benefits. I know I've been using them for that personally, but that's actually starting to impact a little bit of, of the profit picture. The biggest news is the increased loans and card receivables. That was up 19%. Now, that was the slowest growth we've seen in five quarters, but they're starting to see more and more provisions for some of those losses as the economy starts to go into a point of a little bit more uncertainty. So, they continue to affirm the guidance of 15% to 17% revenue growth, a little bit less on the earnings per share growth, but still pretty attractive. You're paying 15 times for a business for a dividend yield of 1.5%. For American Express probably won't get the same kind of growth you're going to see this year, but overall, that's not a bad price for a business that buys back a lot of stock and returns a lot of cash back to shareholders. Do you think that's a demonstration of the power of that brand? Like Amex is almost like an aspirational brand in some ways. So, with younger generations seeing that, I don't know. It just strikes me that maybe that that's sort of an aspirational brand. It just it seems to demonstrate the power of that American. Yeah, economy. and seventy percent of their new cards uh, growth was um, from uh, fee based cards. So yep. it wasn't like they're just taking a whole bunch of like no fee cards. Johnson and Johnson's first quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. They raised guidance for the full fiscal year and boosted the dividend. And despite all that goodness, Jason. Shares of J&J still down a bit this week. Well, that's okay. They have a little bit of a spinoff coming up here soon, Chris. But it was a very encouraging quarter for the company. Adjusted operational sales, uh, which is ultimately just revenue excluding currency effects, were up across all three segments. Uh, Consumer health up 11.3%. Pharmaceutical up 7.2%. Medtech up 6.4%. That all translated to uh, adjusted earnings of $2.68. If you remember, they acquired Abiomed, uh, which closed in December. That gives the medtech segment now 12 platforms that generate over $1 billion in sales every year. So, I mean, this is as steady a business as it gets. Management approved a 5.3% increase in the dividend. That makes it the 61st consecutive year of dividend increases, and that ensures their dividend king status remains in place. The big question, though, does really remain in the spinoff of the consumer business, which will happen by the end of the year. That will ultimately be called Kenview. Not really sure the impetus there, but we can look forward to December 5th, where they will have an investor day where we'll get a lot more information on how these two new companies will uh, function. DR Horton's first quarter profits came in higher than expected. Couple that with encouraging guidance. And shares of DR Horton up more than 8% this week and hitting a new all-time high, Andy. It was that guidance, Chris. The net sale orders was up... 
73% from the first quarter. This is their fiscal second quarter from the first quarter. So the trend is continuing to be very healthy looking ahead. I guess some very uncertain environment, even though the stock's up 44% for the past year. Homes closed was just shy of 20,000, down 1%, still very attractive in this kind of a market. Home building revenue up at $7.5 billion, flat to last year, net income at $942 million. Pre tax margin fell to 15.6 from 23.5% a year ago driven by lower home sales margins because they've had to offer some incentives and they've had lower home prices on average and lot costs are up 5%. So overall, cancellation rate up a little bit, but still within within, um, a very respectable uh, uh, manner. Um, They wrote down some of their inventory and impairments, but overall, D.R. Horton continuing to get it done. And you have a stock that sells at less than 10 times earnings with a little bit of a 1% yield. So it's a pretty good stock when I look at the uh, opportunity for a home building leader. This is the biggest home builder in America. Am I wrong to be encouraged by what that means for housing in general? Well, I think you should not be wrong. They are not wrong. I think it is encouraging when you think about the amount of home building that we need to see in this country to handle the demand. I think it's very attractive for the market overall. The stocks have all run from their very bottom low, but still, long term, probably an attractive place to put some capital. In 2020, Lululemon bought Mirror, the at-home fitness company, for $500 million, an acquisition that has gone so badly, Lululemon has had to write down almost the entire cost. This week, multiple outlets reported that Lululemon is now looking to sell Mirror to Hydro, a private startup company that sells connected rowing machines. Jason, how much do you think Hydro is willing to pay for this thing that they had to write down. It's one of the things I love about Chris. He's just not afraid to mince words, is he, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the words of Ron Burgundy, that escalated quickly. I mean, this was something that happened, I think, very quickly. Now, I don't know how optimistic we all were with this acquisition in the first place. It happened in a, in a very abnormal time. Um, in hindsight, it's not that big of a surprise seeing that they're doing this, given how the rest of the fitness home thesis has played out. I mean, we've seen Peloton with very much the same trouble. Uh, you know, the flip side of that, we're seeing companies like Apple really uh, doubling down on, on the digital fitness experience. And that ultimately looks like what Lululemon is trying to do as well. This reminded me a lot of Under Armour's acquisition of MyFitnessPal and Endomundo back in the day, which they ultimately sold to an investment firm for $345 million. They acquired it for about $500 million, sold it for $345 million. It wasn't a total loss. I'm not so sure that Lululemon is going to be able to get away with this one, because they've already written off close to $450 million this deal. And so, I mean, they're clearly kind of a desperate seller here. And so, you know, it's something that doesn't really jibe with their business. They're more of a desperate seller. I'd be very interested to see what they fetch for this. All right, Jason Moser, Andy Cross, guys, we will see you a little bit later in the show. But up next, we're going to take a closer look at Apple CEO Tim Cook's trip to India with our guest, Bill Mann. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. My bills are all due, and the babies need shoes, but I'm busted. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Bill Mann is the Director of Small Cap Research at The Motley Fool. He joins me now. Thanks for being here. Hey, Chris. How are you? I'm doing well. And the reason I wanted to talk with you 
is because it's earnings season, my favorite time of year. But one of the things I do recognize about earnings season is, particularly as we are starting to ramp it up, we get so focused. It's easy to get focused on the companies that are reporting, particularly the larger companies here in the U.S. And because of that, we are inevitably, as investors, missing things, particularly outside the United States. And you're always the first person I think of on the investing team when I want to talk about investing opportunities outside the U.S. So let's let's start with China. Um, okay. For any number of reasons, but you mentioned something to me that that sort of um, surprised me, and maybe I shouldn't be surprised that that China has somewhat quietly become the number two exporter of automobiles in the world. Isn't that something? You tell me, because you can look at it and say, "Well, wait a minute." It, you know, you look at the population, the the manufacturing capability. On the other hand. Yeah, it is kind of surprising, particularly when we think about cars outside the United States. We think of Japan, we think of Germany. We don't necessarily think of China. Yeah, in fact, Japan and Germany, Japan, Germany, and the U.S. is kind of the list in terms of car manufacturers. You know, there's there's Swedish cars that we know about, and English cars, and French, but it really does seem like it is those three, and. It is overstating to say that it came out of nowhere, but earlier this year, Elon Musk came out and said he expected that the biggest competition that Tesla would face in electric vehicles was going to be a Chinese company. So, people who are in the industry have probably recognized that there is a that there is a threat coming from China or a competitive threat because it's actually it's actually kind of okay because a lot of the a lot of the cars that are being exported from China, for example, are are Teslas and Volkswagens and nameplates like that that you would that you would not necessarily recognize as being Chinese, but China's. Uh, capacity has grown about 60% over the last year in terms of number of cars. And it had never exported more than a million cars in a year. Uh, and it's it's just grown so quickly that I don't think that, yeah, I don't think that it is too much to say that it's something that snuck up on a lot of people. What do you think that means in terms of messaging from automakers like Ford and General Motors? Um, you know, made in America is a tagline that works for a lot of businesses. Um, it, it, you made the point about Tesla and Volkswagen, a U.S. automaker and a German automaker producing cars in China. Um, do you think that's going to matter in the automotive business here in the U.S.? Do you think where the the vehicle originated is going to matter? Uh, you know, I, 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 would, I would have to say that it probably doesn't. Right, you don't really know. I mean, it's 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 clear to you they will they they will tell you on the manufacturer's statement. But if you buy a BMW in this country, it's it is not abundantly clear whether it has been built in the U.S. or in Germany or you know or even in a third country. Uh, so I'm not sure that it matters that uh, all that much. The thing to be that's that's interesting about the Chinese manufacturing uh, 
push that we've seen is that it has also come at a period of time in which, for the first time, I don't know, let's call it in a century, that the type of manufacturing, because of the type of fuel stock that's being used, has shifted. And so, China has had car manufacturers for a bunch of years, but what they have not been able to really get past was the fact that they didn't have a whole lot of credibility in internal combustion engine automobiles. But since everything seems to be moving to electric vehicles, and that is the majority of their experts uh, exports are in EVs, that there isn't really a country that they are competing with anymore, right? You don't have an enormous amount of German EV credibility. You don't have a whole lot of U.S.-based credibility, except for this massive thing called Tesla, which is not to say that the manufacturers aren't doing it and that they aren't good at it, but it's not what they're known for. So, China, in some respects, is coming into a little bit of a vacuum for the first time in this industry in decades. When you think about EVs, how concerned should people be with regards to uh, the number of charging stations here in the United States? Because you hear anecdotally, well, it's a lot easier to fill up uh, your car with gas than it is to, you know, to charge your car from five percent all the way up to a hundred percent, that sort of thing. It doesn't seem to be problematic now, but. Uh, doesn't the uh, the number of charging stations have to keep pace with the number of EVs that are on the road? Because at the moment, that does not appear to be the case. No, uh, and we have not we, we we haven't hit a point in time in which you have a huge amount of stress. Now, it 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 bears rem- reminding that several companies, primarily Tesla, have their own charging network, and that that goes back to uh, a point in time when EVs were first really coming out onto the road in 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 a large way, and. Tesla had offered to share its technology, and the other even potential manufacturers said no. So that's why there is, you know, in this country, networks that are kind of over overlapping each other. Uh, Rivian is in the process of building its own charging networks. So it kind of depends on what you mean. So for long haul. Uh, driving, which is for most people in uh, in individual uh, passenger cars, kind of a minority of of what they do. Uh, yeah, there is going to come a, a period of time in which a network will have to continue to grow, and there are going to be all sorts of transmission and distribution uh, challenges that come to the to the utilities. But it bears remembering that with with electric vehicles, unlike ICEs, you can actually refuel them at home. So, in a lot of ways, the network that is required is entirely different from the network of gas stations that were required out there, because I don't know if you know anybody who has a gas station at their house. I don't. I don't, but now I'm thinking ah, that might be a nice little feature. Exactly. <laughs> it turns out you might not know this, though, Chris. That uh, that that the stuff that auto fuel is made from is a little bit flammable. So there are other considerations behind besides this might be nice. 
That's a good tip. Let's move on to Apple because this week Apple opened a store in Mumbai. It is the company's first store in India. CEO Tim Cook was there,、uh, was also meeting with the Prime Minister. Let's start with the opportunity for Apple because at the moment, when you look at the smartphone market in India, Apple has less than 5% of the market share. I saw one analyst compare the opportunity for Apple today in India to the opportunity they had 15, 20 years ago in China. Do you think that's a reasonable comparison? It's a little bit different because when they were going into China, it wasn't like they were going into a market in which smartphones already existed. So you're, you're talking about an industry in which, or a market, I should say, in which they will have to displace、uh, existing smart, smartphone manufacturers. Now, Apple is really, really good at doing that. And one of the things that it bears remembering about India is that it is 1.4 billion people, but it's got a middle class. By some estimates, of 300 million people, which is essentially the size of the United States. So we tend to think of India as being a developing economy, and it very much is. It has a massive, massive amount of people、uh, who have disposable income. So for whom the ticket price of an iPhone is not going to necessarily be、uh, something that would, you know, that, that, we, that they would not be willing to do. Part of this is marketing. Part of this is also manufacturing, as Apple has increasingly made moves to diversify its manufacturing base. And Cook has made no real secret about the fact that he's looking to take some of what they have been doing in China for a long time and move it to India. What is a reasonable expectation for investors in terms of the timeline for making that happen? And what, if anything, it does to move the already impressive profitability needle at Apple? So I don't think that there's any. Accident that Tim Cook also recently went to China and he did it in a very visible way, met with leaders, you know, and, and he was given an incredibly warm welcome when he came to China. Very little, the, Apple to date has moved very little of its manufacturing out of China. And you might ask why it is that a company would be so careful because when they look at China, It is in a lot, of, a lot of ways, as we learned during the pandemic, a risk because it, it became a single point of failure for them. But it's not like that, that logistics network and the supply network can just be、uh, lift repeated into India right away. And if they manage to make the Chinese angry in the process, that's not good news either because China does have the capacity to really, really mess. With Apple. It doesn't seem like it's not like China is threatening Apple right now. They have a very good relationship with the company. I would not expect Apple in any way to get out of China. I think when people think that, they are they're not really thinking through the actual advantages of manufacturing in, in China might be. What he is, the, what, the needle that he is trying to thread is to say, We need to have some of this manufacturing elsewhere. So it's not this or that. 
it's this and that. So that's why I think the China visit and the India visit were so closely tied together. Last thing, and then I'll let you go. We've talked about India. We've talked about China. What's a really under the radar country that has, uh, you know, gotten your attention over the last few weeks in terms of investment opportunities, whether it's an entire industry or just you found this little company um, in some little corner of the world? Yeah. So for me, it's hard because when I talk about Brazil, you know, one of the quips about Brazil is that it's the country of the future and it always will be. But Brazil has a couple of things going for it. The one thing that it, that, that it has is it has incredibly sophisticated, incredibly healthy mining companies. And when you see a lot of people talking about, about zero emissions and, and, and a lot of the development that's going to happen, have to happen, it's going to come with a huge huge amount of demands on mining companies and natural resource companies. And so, I think people are really underestimating just how powerful a position that Brazil is in right now. This is why I always love talking to him. Bill Mann, thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks, Chris. Up next, Jason Moser and Andy Cross return with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio once again with Jason Moser and Andy Cross. Guys, if you've been to the grocery store lately and you've wandered down the snack aisle or the breakfast cereal aisle, you might have noticed some of the offerings are getting smaller. Not the boxes, Jason, the food. Over the past few months, General Mills, Hostess Brands, and Pepsi's Frito-Lay division have been rolling out mini versions of breakfast cereals, Twinkies, and Doritos, and it appears to be resonating with at least some consumers. One company executive was quoted in the Wall Street Journal as saying, it's about the backseat of the minivan test. If you're handing something back in the car seat, you want it eaten, you don't want it smeared, and everywhere else. Andy, I think we can all associate with this. I like this move. I like that they're trying new things. I, I can def- definitely empathize with that, with that uh, quote. I first really saw this when Oreo cookies came out with thinner versions uh-huh. of their cookies, and I was like, "This is just this is made for me because now I can eat like a pack of it, but not feel like I'm all all that guilty." Chris, you are seeing it. It's like the opposite of the supersized days. They're just like kind of like continuing to shrink, not just the packaging and what's in the package, but actually the physical look and feel of the things that we're buying. So, hey, it's it's a margin game, and they're playing the margin game. Yeah, it's a little weird to me that it took this long. I mean, clearly the candy companies nailed this way back when with Halloween candy. And, I mean, Crystal nailed it with their little burgers, right? So, I mean, better late than never. I will say, while I am very fascinated, I, I got to believe those little mini Cinnamon Toast Crunch are just sublime. Not terribly, uh, not terribly, I don't feel the same way in regard to Doritos, man. I mean, I just, I don't know. It feels like the Doritos could be messier, but maybe that's just. <laughs> <laughs> to bring it back to the margin game, I will just point out, shares of Pepsi, General Mills, and Hostess Brands 
all three of those over the past year are outpacing the S&P 500 by more than 10 percentage points. I'm just saying it's not a coincidence. Size is innovation. Let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Andy, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Guys, I'm looking at Tractor Supply, symbol TSCO. Listen, I'm a fan of the hit show Yellowstone, which should be back this summer to finish up Season 5. And I'm putting on my rancher cowboy hat to look at Tractor Supply. Tractor Supply commonly or calls itself the largest rural retailer in the U.S., targeting the needs of recreational farmers, ranchers, and all those who enjoy the rural lifestyle. It's a $27.3 billion company founded more than 85 years ago. Operates more than 2,000 stores across 49 states. Most of those stores are in rural locations, and they have done just a fabulous job speaking to a lot of people who have fled the cities and moved to the rural country or outside the cities to get a different environment. They can work remotely, and they can embrace their rancher or embrace their farm. They've been remodeling a lot of their stores under Project Fusion, which brings more of a contemporary and convenient experience to include more digital tools and an improved layout. They're building out a distribution network with three new distribution centers announced on top of the nine they already have in operation. They've grown for 30 consecutive years. So when I look at tractor supply, I think it's a really interesting attractive. The stock is a little bit pricey at 24 times, 23 estimates, but you get a little 1.6% dividend yield with it. Dan, question about Tractor Supply? Absolutely, Chris. Andy, do you think Tractor Supply is ever going to rebrand? Because, honestly, I I was confused when I learned that Tractor Supply doesn't actually sell tractors, and it's more of a standard retail and almost lifestyle brand at this point. Do you think a rebranding is in their future? No, I do not think it's in their future. Jason Moser, what's on your radar? Paying attention to Amazon, ticker AMZN. They have earnings coming out this coming Thursday. Uh, Stock has had a strong start to the year, up around 25%. There's obviously been a lot of talk here lately as to whether Andy Jassy is really up for the task. Should we expect to see Jeff Bezos stepping back in? I think that's highly unlikely. And frankly, Jassy's kind of cleaning up some of the mess that happened under Bezos' watch. But I think we're going to see a big focus on cost controls here in the the call. And, And to put some context around that, they doubled their fulfillment center footprint that they built over the prior 25 years. And then they had to accelerate building the last mile transportation network that's now the size of UPS. And if you look at the fulfillment costs, fulfillment was 16.8% of total operating expenses in 2022. You go back to 2017, that number was just 14.5%. So, I think that cost controls will be a big theme of the call. Dan, question about Amazon? Not really a question, Chris. More of a comment. Jason Moser, breaking new ground with a little-known company, Amazon.com, here on Motley Fool Money. You know, I love Dan's comments. They're, they're, uh, the questions can, some kind, they can sometimes come out of left field. The comments are always entertaining. That's why we love you, Dan. What do you want to add to your watch list, Dan? Well, I love you too, Jason. I think I'm going to go Tractor Supply, though, because again, Amazon, a little a little bit of a household name at this point. All right. Andy Cross, Jason Moser, guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Pool Money radio show. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.